0: At this time, we welcome the children to Children's Church, which they'll find through this door on the left side of the sanctuary near the piano. And could I ask the rest of us to open in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 1023. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. Luke 7:36. I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what sort of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has forgiven he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there are two Two characters in this story, the Pharisee and the sinful woman. I don't know which one I identify with most. As I was growing up, uh, the last thing on my mind that that I ever imagined would happen. Of course, I had many ambitions for my life. I was, you know, the greatest person in the world, and all this sort of thing. No typical kid. But the last thing I ever imagined was that I would be standing before people like you today, proclaiming the word of God and and making that. Uh, the direction of my life. But here I am. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a good Pharisee. You know, so it, it's, it's amazing how, how things can change. I, I hope you won't mind me saying this, but what a lovely looking bunch of very religious people. It's so great to be gathered in this religious place for this religious occasion, on this religious day, this religious service. And here I am, a religious figure, I'm going to give you a religious address to encourage you in living a religious life. And I wouldn't want it any other way. I love it. It's great. But there's something a little bit, uh, something about that way of saying it that just rubs our fur the wrong way. There's something about even that word religion. And I think what it is, is... It's just it. It all just sounds so self-congratulatory, so self-aggrandizing. Like we want a lot of credit, and this is the thing that religion does: is it divides people into two groups. There are those who are good at showing off in a religious setting, and those who aren't. And uh, you know, if if you're good at it, then you like to be there and you like to make a lot of it, and if you're not good at it, then sooner or later you just get out of there because it doesn't fit you. And uh, so that's what religion does to people. We, we tend to divide into two groups. There are the legalists and there are the libertines. There are the, the formalists and then there are the fools. There are the self-righteous prigs and then there are the profligates. And uh, we tend to divide out into two groups and hardly ever get together after that. And in this story, there's a third character who brings a different way, a new way, and it's Jesus. And he brings a new way to follow, uh, to follow God. It's not the way of legalism, it's not the way of license, but it's the way that keeps us on the center track, the way of love. And how can we get on that way and stay on it? I think that's the subject of this little story. What we have here in this little story is Luke's picture of love. In the beginning of chapter 7, there was a picture of faith. There was the centurion, that great soldier, you know, who, who really had faith and he could see the invisible, he could believe that Jesus had the authority and the power to, to heal his servant's sickness. And so he didn't even want Jesus to enter into his house. He said, just say the word and you can do it. A great picture of faith. And so the lesson was that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a follower of Christ, a disciple, you have to be able to see the invisible. You have to have faith to be able to see Jesus for who he is if you want to be his follower. And in this story... A picture of love, there's also a lesson. And uh, the lesson is that if you want to be a Christian, how do I put this? You have to be a little crazy. Um, no, you, the, I, the word is extravagant. That you have to be Ready to be extravagant in your love for Christ, because one person's extravagance is another person's craziness. One person, for what one person is uh, is extravagant or generous, for another person is just extreme, a little nutty. And if you are extravagant in your love for Christ, the way this woman was extravagant in her love for Christ, then some people are going to think you're crazy. And you're going to have to be a little crazy to be a follower of Christ. You're going to have to be crazy in love with him. Extravagant love. So what we want to do is we want to look at the picture. And we want to learn from the picture. And then we want to go out and live the picture. So first we're going to look at the picture of extravagant love that Luke has preserved for us here. And uh, so it's just picking up in verse 36... First we're going to introduce the characters and the first character to meet is our host this Pharisee and uh, so it says in verse 36 now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table and two things you need to know about Pharisees and about this Pharisee they are religious this fellow is religious He's serious about following God. He's serious about his faith in God. And he means to live it out. He means to put it into practice. And he's ready to pay a price and to do what it takes to live for God. And he wishes that everybody would do the same. And uh, he has a vision of how much better Israel would be, how much better the world would be if everyone would come on board. So he's religious. But the other thing you need to know about him is that he's very reasonable. He's very realistic. He, uh, the, the Pharisees had a kind of Judaism that they had developed that was realistic and livable. They had taken the, the, the laws of God, which could just be so searching and so demanding and so out of control, so difficult to accept and even understand, And they had tamed the laws of God. They had found a way to live with them through the traditions, the traditional teachings, what they call the teaching of the elders. And uh, these teachings gave them just a habitual way of looking at and understanding the law of God, understanding God, understanding what it means to live for God, that was tame. It was doable. It was reasonable. It was livable. Not extravagant like this woman who's coming in just such an extremist, so far out, uh, so overboard, but much more reasonable. And then the woman, and look what it says about her, verse 37. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. So here is a woman, and what we're told about her is that she is a sinner. She's lived a sinful life. The word is a sinner. So she's one of these people on the other side. She's not religious. She has not been following the ways of God. She hasn't been gathering together with the people of God, but she's separated off into her own thing. It's interesting, the, the word Pharisee. Where it it seems to originate is from an ancient word meaning to separate. And so the Pharisees were the separated ones. But also the sinners tend to be separated and they don't want to go and mix with the religious people. So she would prefer her own company, her own kind. What was her sin? You can't really guess. It's very likely that it had something to do with... um, marital unfaithfulness, or not marrying properly, um, maybe just you know, fooling around, as a, maybe began as a girl and then continued on, or maybe adultery, or maybe prostitution. Something like this that uh, it probably involves that area of life, though it could be something else. Maybe she's married to a person who just has the wrong career, um, and so she's involved in the wrong kind of business. Uh, just through through her husband 's business, whatever it is we 're not really told what it is, and it doesn 't really matter what it is she 's a sinful woman and the third thing you need to know about this woman is that she knows it, and a change has come over her she 's heard the teaching of jesus she 's heard about Jesus, and she has seen with those eyes of faith she 's seen the invisible. And she's come to understand who who Jesus is and to believe in him. And she's experienced a complete renewal of her heart. She's become a new person through faith in Christ. And so, here she comes. What does she do? First, as she hears where Jesus is, she's got to go. She takes her alabaster jar of perfume. So she takes... Her best. She takes uh, whatever she has that's valuable and most precious. Uh, you know, when you're in love, when you when you have this kind of exuberant, overflowing love, like what this woman has, then greed is driven out and greed disappears. And so she grabs her best. Her alabaster jar is a handmade stone carved jar with a very long neck with uh, an ointment inside Made from imported spices worth a lot, and prepared by a very laborious you know hand handmade process into a very expensive ointment which is used as a perfume and so something very valuable for a woman to have, and uh, probably cost her a great deal of money. You know there was another place in the Gospel of John, it talks about a bottle of perfume like this being poured out, and oh the 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 upset among the disciples over the waste of the money, the money that it represented. So it was valuable. She's giving her best, taking her best along with her. And what does she do? She goes to the Pharisee's house. What nerve, what nerve for a woman like her to make her appearance there. But when you have the kind of extravagant love that a disciple of Jesus is supposed to have, then you have nerve to go places, to say things, to do things without being concerned what people may say about you, how they might whisper and uh, cluck behind your back. And she gets there and she stands behind Jesus' feet and she weeps. She stands behind Jesus at his feet and she weeps. And so, of course, you know, how is it that she's, you know, there's some customs here that we have to take a little break here and try to understand. How is it that she just enters into the Pharisee's house? Uh, you know, if, if I invite somebody over to my house, I don't just expect, you know, people to hear about it and then show up. And, uh, but there are times in the ancient world when they would hold feasts of this kind and they could be public and people could be expected just to come along to listen to what the, the wise men are talking about and see what they could learn and see what the wise men are eating and maybe get a, a, a bit here and there, maybe some leftovers or, or snatch a bit of food. And uh, so there was an open-door policy sometimes. And, and what we see here, nobody's upset about the fact that she showed up. Nobody's uh, you know shocked or complaining or putting her out because she entered the house. So apparently that wasn't anything too out of the ordinary. And so then what she does is she comes and she stands behind Jesus at his feet. Now if you and I are sitting at table and we're eating dinner, it's very hard to stand at our feet by standing behind us because our feet are under the table and you're behind me, you're about as far from my feet as you can get. But that's what it says in the text. Obviously what's happening is that they're reclining at the table, which means that they're sitting around a low table resting on their left elbows, eating with their right hands, and facing each other around the table. And their feet are back there behind them, far away from the table. And so she comes up behind Jesus, and there's his feet. Uh, So that explains that. But it doesn't explain what happens next, which is that she weeps. She weeps. Now we know she's a sinful woman. Jesus is a teacher of... Holiness and a teacher of forgiveness. So, why is she weeping? Are these tears of joy or are they tears of grief over her sin? Is she filled with joy at the forgiveness that comes from Christ or is she filled with grief at all that she's done? Have you ever wept these tears? They are the sweetest tears and the bitterest tears you'll ever cry. They're the tears of one who realizes he's a sinner, who is driven to come, who can't stay away, who must go to find Jesus where he is. Because the burden of sin is so great, so terrible. And so there is grief. There's a terrible bitterness in the soul. Because a person is now coming to see their sin for what it is and to hate themselves for what they've become, for what they've done. And their tears of tremendous joy. You get there and you, you're confessing your sin in, in all this bitterness of soul and you're realizing the wonderful good news of forgiveness, the wonderful freedom of, of forgiveness and of release. And so your conscience is set free And you feel a a complete joy and freedom and, and then your conscience begins to go to work. And it starts looking around and seeing all the other sins that you didn't even think about and you hadn't even thought about confessing or repenting from. And it points those out to you and condemns you for those. And so it's so bitter. But the bitterer it gets, the sweeter it gets because here's Jesus and he's forgiving you. And all your sin is forgiven. It's such a wonderful thing and the tears just flow as the waves go this way and that way and take you here and there, it's such, a, it's such an experience as, as nothing else in life. Uh, the tears of repentance. So she weeps these tears as she's crying there. Her tears are falling and they're beginning to moisten the feet of Jesus. And so she sees that. She's wetting his feet, these feet that have the roads of the ancient Near East, dirt roads, no pavement, and uh, dusty feet, uncleaned, and her tears falling on them and um, staining them where they fall. And so she stoops down to wipe his feet, and she has a sleeve. She has the hem of her garment, her robe, but she chooses her hair. And she wipes his feet with her hair, She uses her best. She gets herself personally and completely involved in loving Jesus. Loving Jesus isn't something you do by remote control. It's not something you do by sending somebody else or by writing a check. But it involves yourself, a personal relationship. You know, Christianity is not about doing things. It's about loving and it takes your own self, your own involvement. So to get herself as involved as she can with Jesus, she wipes his feet with with her hair. And uh, one balding sort of fellow in the early service came and told me it's a, it's a good thing that there are other ways to show love for Jesus. But what she does next is so surprising. She kisses his feet. And... And you know it 's not just that she landed a kiss on his feet in the midst of all this, and the, you know, but the verb is, is in a is in a um a continuous sort of tense, which means that she went on kissing his feet, and the form of the verb it's a uh, it 's an intensive form, so she was really showering kisses on the feet of Jesus, and so no wonder that the Pharisee and his guests were embarrassed because. You couldn't just ignore it. You know, you kind of, after a few, you kind of pretend you didn't hear that, you didn't see that, and maybe it's going to stop and we can just, but it goes on and it goes on until we all have to realize that we all know that we all saw that she's kissing his feet and she's still doing it. So she kisses his feet. What is this? This is utter reverence. The lowest part of Jesus is worth the very best sign of affection and love and desire that I can give my kiss and my kisses and more kisses. So this is utter reverence for Jesus and who he is. It's an expression of of love that is putting Jesus in the the highest esteem imaginable. And uh, this is the kind of love that a disciple of Christ is meant to have. And then uh, she she pulls out her jar of ointment and she anoints his feet. Um, so this is the extravagance. This is going. This is where she's just really spilled over far beyond bounds. You know, taking this valuable perfume and wasting it on feet, which you know, do what you will. They're just feet. Uh, but she gives her best for his feet and uh, just the extravagance, the overboard nature of her love. And so she gives him a foot rub. You know, my mother, um, when I was a teenage boy, she uh, got me, I don't know how she did this, somehow she trained me to give her foot rubs. I think uh, finally at some point there, there there came to be an exchange of money involved. But um, I... I I would rub her feet, you know she would be out riding horses or something all day, and she 'd come back and take off her big riding boots and oh, Seth, will you give me a foot rub and you know. so I had this damaged childhood, you know growing up doing, <laughs> doing all this, and I, I shared about all, all this burden and wound with with my my, my girlfriend, my fiance, and uh, she got this great idea that uh, <laughs> wouldn 't it be nice if I would give her a foot rub? And uh, so it never stops. You know, the, it's, it's this thing that you just... You, you know, I would never ask someone to give me a foot rub because I know it's, it's just not a pleasant thing to do. But here she is. Here she is. And the thing is, my wife never pays me. But, but here she is, paying this attention to the feet of Jesus and uh, pouring out her love on his very feet. What extravagant love And uh, what is it that can bring about such an extravagant form of love in a disciple? How can you or I come to have that kind of love for Christ? How can our lives begin to picture this kind of extravagant, exuberant, overflowing love? And I think the answer comes in what Jesus does with this picture how he uses this picture to begin to teach. And he begins to teach Simon the Pharisee by having Simon look at this picture and see it and learn where real love, Christian love, comes from. And so he turns to... uh, So Simon is there, verse 39, and Simon is saying... Obviously, this, this guy Jesus is not a, not, a, not a prophet. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And so, the, this Pharisee thinks he's safe in his own inner thoughts. He's quietly thinking to himself. And what he doesn't realize is that Jesus knows all about it, that Jesus is, is following right along. You see, what brings this kind of love, this kind of exuberant, overflowing, extravagant love in our hearts is the experience of the love of Christ for us. We love because he first loved us. And so the first thing I want us to see about the love of Christ, the first thing that the passage teaches us about the love of Christ is that Christ knows us that his love is not an ignorant love, but his love is a love that has seen right into our hearts and our souls. He not only knows what this woman has done, he knows what she's thought, and he knows her heart. He knows her heart now. And he not only knows what Simon is thinking, but he knows the root of Simon's motivations. He knows Simon's heart. And yet, Jesus receives the hospitality of Simon. And he receives the love of this woman. Sinful though we are, Jesus receives our love. And uh, he knows who we are. He knows us thoroughly and inside out. And when someone knows you that well and loves you, what a security that gives you. What a strength it gives you. A confidence it gives you in his love. So, the love of Jesus is the love of one who knows us. And the love of Jesus is the love of the perfect heart of the Son of God. The love of the Son of God. This passage is, is one of those that is so clear in proclaiming that Christ is the Son of God, but in a kind of a veiled uh, backdoor way, not straight out saying, I am the Son. But uh, but it makes it so clear. Look at the parable that Jesus tells. He says, "Look, I have something to tell you. OK, tell me, teacher." And he talks about the two men who owed money to the money lender. Uh, one owed an amount like the down payment on a car, and the other owed an amount like the down payment on a house. and he forgave them both. Now which one will love him more? And uh, so Simon gets it right. And, and Jesus, uh, Jesus says, uh, you see this woman, she has loved me because she's been forgiven so much. Now, wait a minute. I thought in the story, the money lender was like God, you know, God forgives our sins. He's patient with us. We sin against him and then it's God who forgives the sin, and then we love who? God. But Jesus is saying, she loves me. And you, Simon, you, you ought to love me the way that this woman is loving me. Simon, you ought to love me exuberantly with an overflowing extravagance the way that this woman has loved me. And your love is small because you've only found forgiveness for a few sins. And so, uh, what is Jesus saying? He's putting himself right at the center. He's saying, I'm your Lord. I'm the one that you've sinned against. I'm the one who forgives your debts. Come to me. Turn to me. I'm the Son of God. And so, again, look at the end of the passage. Um, What does he say to the woman at the end? He says, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests say, who is this? That's the theme of the Gospel of Luke. It's the theme of all the Gospels. Who is this? Who is this who comes and even forgives sins? And he's the Son of God. That's who he is. So, it's the Son of God who has loved you. It's the Son of God who has loved you. Now, if the Creator has loved you, then who can reject you? And what difference does it make if anybody or everybody rejects you? If the Creator loves you, then you're accepted. If the Judge loves you, then who is there to punish you? There's nobody left. If the Almighty loves you, then what can hurt you? Who can do you any harm? The Almighty has loved you. And so the Christian is in an ocean of love, far beyond what you can see, far beyond what you can reach, surrounded by love, in depths of love, the love of the Son of God. It's never-ending. It's from the infinite heart, the perfect heart of the Son of God. So it's the love that knows us. It's the love that created us. The love of the Son of God. And it's love that forgives us. Because isn't that what he does? He's forgiven the huge debt. And so that's why this woman loves the way she loves. That's the explanation of what she's doing. It's that Christ has forgiven her sins. And so she loves much. So, uh, so Jesus knows, he knows us, he's the son of God and he forgives our sins. And so, in, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So, where does it come from, this, this love that Christians are supposed to have? How are we supposed to get this kind of love? How are we supposed to become these these, uh, exuberantly loving disciples of Christ? You know, my heart is so sluggish and so slow and so unresponsive and I get so distracted with so many other things that seem more important to me at the moment than Jesus. How do I get this kind of love? I, I become like a hardened Pharisee finding easy ways to serve God, an easy kind of Christianity. How do I get this kind of love in my heart? Just turn back and drink again of the love of Jesus. It's because of what he has done for me that will inspire, that will refresh, that will renew. It's because I've become over-familiar. It's because I'm not paying attention to what his love really means. I'm forgetting it. I'm ignoring it. That's why my love grows cold. So, let our hearts be filled with love. You know, sometimes we wish we lived back in those good old days when Jesus was on the earth. Then we could really do something. We could really show him our love. Boy, we would be like this woman. You know, we would be at the very front. We would be his faithful disciples. You know, that's what we tell ourselves. And it's too bad that we live now when, you know, Christ isn't here. And we really can't show him any love. So I guess that's the end of the sermon. We'll sing a hymn and we'll go. Uh, no, there's, there's a, a day today which is a, a wonderful day to believe in Jesus. A day like no other to love Christ, to live for him, to serve him, to honor him. And uh, people are doing it all around us and we can do it too. Let this love of Christ inspire our hearts and renew us. Feed on it. Ponder it. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. Is, is for pondering and reconsidering and uh, estimating the love of Christ. And that's what our songs are for. And that's what you know, our daily times of prayer and devotion are for, for coming back and uh, taking a fresh drink of the love of Christ. So how can we live out this picture in a new, fresh way today? Where's your jar? Where's your alabaster jar of perfume? Pick it up. Take it along. Take your best. Let love drive out greed and serve the Lord with what you have. And where is Jesus? Have you heard? Have you heard where he is? Where is he reclining at supper? Where can I go? Is it in the hospital? Is it in the nursing home? Is he with my children at home where I need to be with them? Is is he in the schools? Is he in some executive lounge somewhere where I have opportunity to share the gospel with some lonely people who are at the top? Is, is Jesus in my neighbor's house who's going through a divorce? Where is Jesus? I need to get there. I need to be there. And I need to pour out my love on him. And then uh, you get there. And what do you do? You stand there and you weep. You need to take the time just to go over your sin and what it is and how great it is and how terrible it is. You need to remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the cross. Remember his sacrifice. Jesus came for this woman. He walked on those dirty Near Eastern, uh, ancient Near Eastern roads and he traveled to her town to bring that good news of forgiveness and salvation. He, he, uh, he accepted her and welcomed her to come near. Jesus came near. And Jesus comes near to us. He comes near to you. And uh, he brings this infinite love. Take time to soak it in, to meditate on it. And let, let it wrench your heart. Let it wring your heart. Don't try to have a religion that's cold and without feeling. It doesn't make any sense. If Jesus died for your sins, let your heart feel it. Don't just have a reasonable religion. You know, it's like having a wedding where there's not a tear shed and not a smile breaks on any face. It wouldn't make any sense. You'd say, something's wrong here. There's got to be emotion at an occasion like this. And, oh, our hearts are too hard and too cold and not enough emotional response to Jesus. Let it flood your heart. Let the truth of his grace flood your heart and overwhelm you with gratitude and joy and repentance. So weep. Weep those tears. And wipe his feet with your hair. Put your whole self into loving Jesus. Give give all of what you have, but get involved yourself. Don't just send other people... You can't serve the Lord by remote control. You've got to get involved yourself. Put your own time, your own effort, your own thought, your own talents on the line in serving Christ in whatever way that he gives you to do. And kisses. Kisses. Ah, it's getting harder and harder here. Utter reverence for Christ. Utter reverence. The smallest opportunity that I might have. The smallest brother or sister. You know what Jesus said, uh, whatever you have done for the least of these brothers of mine, you have done for me. Oh, the most insignificant opportunity we have in the Kingdom of Christ is a joy and a delight. It's a thrill beyond thrills for the one who loves Christ with this exuberant love. Oh, the reverence that we should have for Christ. For any opportunity. Oh, could I clean up the floor? Oh, could I pick up you know the, the, the leftover things after the service? You know Any little thing I can do. What a thrill to serve my Lord Jesus Christ. His love is so great for me. And uh, so just use your hair. Any Anything you can do to personally get involved. I know a guy who um, I know a guy who's been serving... He served as a missionary for years in Kenya. He was put from one place to another, always having to go and learn a different language, always having to go and learn new customs of different people. You know, they are all the different tribes in Kenya. He was put here, he was put there. He was the pinch hitter. And whenever there was a team that was short a person, well, they would get him in there. And then finally what he did is he, uh, he, he went off to where he really wanted to serve. He went off to China. Uh, you know, the fellow had to learn so many different languages... And he was never good with languages. And so where he went off to learn the hardest, one of the hardest languages in the world, uh, Chinese. But you know, he's just going to wipe the feet with his hair. He's going to do what he can. And uh, you know, that kind of love, it just overflows and it it, uh, speaks so much, it just speaks so much to people. It's so attractive and uh, reveals Christ. So just give of what you have. Just take whatever opportunity you get you've heard of that devotional book, that famous devotional book by J. Oswald, is that his name, J. Oswald Sanders? Uh, My utmost for his highest. Try this, my utmost for his lowest. And it's plenty for me. I know there's a face up there somewhere, but these feet are so wonderful. I can't get past them. I'll save the the face for some other age. I'll have ages to get there. And then, anointing. Be extravagant in your love for Christ. No holds barred, all the stops pulled. Give to Christ all you've got. I've met a fellow who's uh, re- uh, retired. He, uh, as he was pr- facing his retirement, getting ready for his retirement, all of his retirement dreams together with his wife had been to go off to Hilton Head and uh, live down there in the, you know, the beautiful resort. It's like the Cape in this area. Uh, and uh, that's what they wanted to do. But you know, they came to value the church that they were involved in so much in the city that they decided to change their plans and commit their retirement years to serving in that church because they would rather serve the Lord Jesus Christ then enjoy all the, the, the enjoyment of, that they've earned through all those years. What extravagance. How extreme. It's crazy. You mean you're going to live in the city? But uh, for Jesus, it's nothing. It's not enough. It's too small. I can't do enough. I know, I know a lady who makes it almost her, her, her job, her part-time job, just to pray. Just to be at the feet of Jesus and pray. I know so many people who are volunteering in in amazing ways and there are people who can't be available to volunteer because Jesus has called them to some responsibilities in their work, in their family and the door just hasn't opened to them and uh, they're serving Christ where they are out of love. It's wonderful to see. I know a, uh, a guy who has the lowest job the lowest job and uh, you know, no respect from his work, but always a smile, always a cheerful expression, always an encouraging word, this the exuberance of his love flowing out. It's wonderful to do even the smallest thing for Jesus. I know a man who traveled those dirt roads on his feet, who collected the dust of those dirt roads on his feet for us. Who carried with those feet my sins on his back, my cross on his shoulders, up that hill as far as he could go, who was nailed with my sins right through those feet in my place, on my cross, in my stead for my forgiveness. I know a man who was raised from the dead on the third day and stood on those feet stood before his, his doubting disciple Thomas and said, look, these are the feet. They're my feet. And I know a man who will come again and set his feet on this earth to reign and rule again, our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there will be, there will be ages to get to his face, but I'm content with his feet. Let's sing. Take your hymnal and turn to number 157. And let's join together in singing of this great love of God. Would you stand? And let's join together. A member of our prayer team, and uh, love to pray with you after the service. If there's anything that I can pray for you about, I'd love to talk with you. If you've found the love of Christ, if you want to find that love of Christ, come, let's talk. You need to know Christ. So let's pray. Father, be with us now. Write this, this love of Christ on our hearts and let it overflow into our lives. And now as Jesus told the woman, Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Amen.